0: Good morning, everyone. Got my mic on here. Hello, check. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. Just take a look around, see all, who all's here with us today. Hey, Julian. How you doing, man? Good to see you. All right. Well, if you are, uh, you are here, I was about to say, if you are here, but everybody is here, who is here, except for you guys who are joining us online. Maybe I was also talking to you. Uh, John chapter 3. That's where we're at this morning. John chapter 3. As you're turning there, uh, maybe you're visiting with us this morning. We've been studying through the Gospel of John uh, in our Sunday morning services. Last week, we saw the encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus, where Jesus taught the teacher of the Jews that it, uh, it, what it means for man to be born again. Uh, and this week, as John the Baptist nears the end of his God-ordained ministry assignment, which you'll remember we learned in chapter 1, it was to prepare the way for and bear witness to the coming Messiah, But today, in our text, he's going to teach his disciples one last valuable lesson on what it means to humbly exalt Christ. Uh, So let's stand together one more time and read this text together, read the Word of God. I'm going to start John chapter 3, verse 22, and read through verse 30. This is God's holy word. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside And who remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, Look. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Lord, it's our desire as your people, um, we're we're making this statement with our presence here this morning. We we desire to hear your word. We desire to, to listen to it, to receive it, Lord. But in Isaiah 66, this is what you... Call us to do in verse two. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Lord, would, would, we, would we have that kind of posture this morning that we would be humble people, humble men, humble women, that we would have a broken spirit, a spirit that's ready to be uh, laid bare before you and that we would tremble before your word, not necessarily out of fear, uh, for those of us who are in Christ, Lord, but that we would we would rev, be reverent about this word as it's being preached, Lord, that we would listen with reverence, uh, Lord, because you you want to speak to us this morning. So, God, that, that's our request, Lord. We, we pray your word to you, Lord. Look to us as you preach your word in your name. We pray, Amen. You can be seated. When studying this week, I came across a blog post that was written in 2013 by a man named David J. Bob, It's a great name, uh, announcing his then-recently-released book called Humility, an unlikely biography of America's greatest virtue, which that's a very intriguing title to say the least. Uh, Now, I've not read this book. Uh, I did read this post that uh, Mr. Bob wrote, but Mr. Bob, in his article, he, he says that the book considers the lives of some of America's greatest leaders, leaders like Benjamin Franklin and George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, who, from his perspective, were successful as leaders because of the humility with which they led our young, developing nation. Here's a snippet from his post. Uh, that I thought was just really interesting as I read it. It, And this describes the virtue of humility. Listen to this. I think it's in your notes. Humility is a hard-won virtue, constantly demanding an honest assessment of one's real merit. Humility asks us to acknowledge our imperfections. It requires that we admit when we are wrong and then change course. It counsels putting others first in thought, word, and deed, and it avoids the narcissistic self-promotion so rampant today. And then later on in the article, he makes this claim, the truth is no one is naturally humble. No one? Mr. Bob? Really? Surely that can't be true. I mean, I know some pretty humble people, always looking out for the other's best interests, people who are always grateful, always deferring to others, never seeming to have to wrestle against the sin of pride and quite the same that I know I, I have to wrestle with, never seeming to get jealous, never seeming to get in conflict with others, just joyful, content, happy, grateful people, grateful for all they have and for who they get to be in the world. It's almost like a superpower that they have that I, I just don't know anything about what that's like. And I think what we're going to see in this text today, that that this man, John the Baptist, we're going to look at, he's kind of like this guy who seems to have a superpower. But we know from Scripture that John also wasn't born naturally humble. No, none of us were born that way. Mr. Bob's right. Natural humility for mankind was lost the moment Eve took a bite of the apple. And the consequence of that sinful decision in the garden has infected the entire human race. Its curse is woven into the very nature of the flesh that each one of us is born with. We aren't born naturally humble. We're we're born naturally proud. And John was born in the world this way, just like the rest of us. But the difference is that John was a man who had learned over his lifetime the hard-won virtue of humility. He was a man, like Mr. Bob said, who demanded of himself an honest assessment of his own merit. and We're going to see that in the text today. God had made a promise to John's parents that their son would have a divine assignment, an extremely important responsibility to be, as Isaiah had prophesied, a voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way for the coming Messiah. That was John's job and the importance of that kind of calling that would have made me a very proud person to know that that's what I was supposed to do but that's not how John responded for years John this this man he lived in the wilderness living off the land trusting in God to supply just what was necessary for him to survive communion with God disciplining his body preparing himself in the daily discipline of self-denial and by doing so it taught him this valuable lesson it's a lesson that I think God wants us to consider this morning and that we'll see in our text. And this is the main point that I think we'll see, and, and that is true joy is found in humbly exalting Christ. So let's get into the text. First, first before we, um, we, we start reading, let, let's just make sure that the narrator can help us just to kind of set the scene. It's worth noting that we're going to have two different Johns speaking to us today, and that can get a little confusing. We've got John the Baptist, who's going to be a main character in our story. Then we've got John the Apostle, and he's not a main character in the story, but he is the narrator, and so I'm, I'm going to try to help us keep that straight as we're going along, because I know in studying and writing this manuscript, I, I was confused myself sometimes. So um, I'll do my best to make sure we know which John is talking at any given moment. But look at verse, uh, verse 22. John, the narrator, begins with two words. He says, "After this," and you know, stop there for a second. So, you know, when, whenever we see anything in Scripture, we always want to be like—maybe this goes without saying—but always want to be uh, interacting with our Bibles as we're reading them. Uh, you want to take your time, ask ask questions, pay attention to little details that might help bring clarity or color to the text you're reading. You know, so th- he starts, "After this," after what? What's just happened? You, you remember the last several verses, several messages that we've been doing, we've been studying Jesus and his disciples. Uh, they had been in the city of Jerusalem for the Passover, uh, the celebration that was this big scene that happened at the temple there. Uh, then, then we had seen last week that Jesus had this secret conversation at night with one of the religious leaders named Nicodemus about what it was meant. What it it meant to be born again? And so John's letting us know. This next scene, this is happening after those two things. So that's important. But then also skip ahead. Look at verse 24. We got this little parenthetical note that John the narrator gives us. And he's done this several times in the gospel already. Um, But this parenthetical note, it says, For John had not yet been put in prison. Uh, so I, I won't go into too much detail here, but it's an interesting piece of info that shows just, just how intentional John is about writing this gospel. He knows that some of the people who are reading this account, they might be familiar with the timeline of Jesus's ministry that's been presented in the Synoptic Gospels. And those are the other gospels that we have, Matthew and Mark and Luke. And those gospels focus more on the Galilean ministry of Jesus, which took place after John the Baptist's imprisonment by King Herod, before he got his head cut off, if you remember that story. Uh, so, To clear up any potential confusion, John in his gospel is letting us know that this scene's happening right after the cleansing of the temple and right after the convo with Nicodemus and before John was arrested by Herod. I just think that's really helpful for us to kind of get a sense of where this story is taking place. So in verse 22, he goes on, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. So we find that Jesus and disciples are no longer in the bustling metropolis of Jerusalem. Jesus' ministry had begun, and now he and his disciples have made their way out into the Judean countryside and are ministering to what seems to be a growing crowd of followers. Uh, And these followers are responding to his call of salvation. They're turning to him in faith and repentance. And John tells us they're asking him to be baptized. But we're also told that Jesus and his crew aren't the only baptizers in town. Look at verse 23. John also was baptizing. Now this is John the Baptist, not John the narrator. John the Baptist was also baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. So suddenly the focus shifts away from Jesus and on to John the Baptist, who you know, he apparently is also continuing his ministry of baptism in the same general region, which isn't surprising with all the water and all, nothing like we'd find out here in West Texas. Uh, But what John has done in just a couple of verses is, is he's introduced... Like, pay attention to this. He's introduced us to two contenders in an unexpected boxing match. In one corner, we have John the Baptist, the wild, honey- and locust-eating, animal-skin-wearing, bearded outdoorsman. Maybe you want to root for him. And in the other corner, you got Jesus, the up-and-coming, self-proclaimed son-of-God carpenter. If you want to root for him, uh, probably want to root for him, just a spoiler alert. John was the one, uh, he, he had come before, he had identified Jesus, he was the one who actually had baptized Jesus. It was John who had witnessed the Spirit of God descending down upon Jesus like a dove. John, he had been preparing the way, and now the Messiah had come. And you'd think John's disciples would have been beside themselves in delight. It's happening. The Son of God, he's finally here. It's the day we've been waiting for. How exciting. Well, no that's not exactly how they're responding something had been it seems brewing deep in the hearts and the minds of John's disciples and all it took was the question of an anonymous Jew to draw it to the surface look at verse 25 now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification now that word discussion can also be translated debate or argument you know those kinds of discussions don't you what Pastor Billy calls them, intense fellowships. You know, kind of like when your mom tells you, you can discuss that with your father when he gets home. You know, it's not going to be quite a quiet conversation over tea. You know, it's, it's a heated debate. And even though there have been many speculations about what this debate might have entailed, John, he doesn't give us any details other than that it was over purification. And so we have to assume that that was intentional, that John's reasoning for bringing it up isn't about the particular concerns this Jew might have raised. But it does make us ask the question, why, why is he bringing it up at all? If he's not going to tell us what the conversation, like that, that's mean. You tell us about the conversation, you not tell us what the conversation was about. So why is he bringing it up? Well, I think we need to pay attention to what John's told us already. The ministries of both Jesus and John have started looking pretty similar. Both have disciples Both are amassing crowds of followers. Both are calling those followers to repentance. And now both are even baptizing. I wonder if this anonymous Jew came up to John's disciples saying something like, Okay, look, I'm thinking about getting baptized. But I'm a little confused about the whole process. I've grown up a Jew. I've done all the cleaning rituals required by the Mosaic Law. Then I'm hearing about this kind of strange guy, John, who's warning people about the coming Messiah and preaching repentance and baptizing people over in the Jordan River. And then just the other day, I heard about this new fellow named Jesus claiming to actually be the Messiah foretold by John. and, And now he's baptizing people. I mean, I'm just having a hard time making sense of all this. How am I supposed to know which baptism is the real baptism? And, and we don't know what this Jew said. All we can do is speculate. But John, the narrator, you know, he doesn't give us any details, but he doesn't even tell us how the conflict gets resolved, actually. But he does seem to include that this heated exchange shows a reaction in John's disciples. And I think that's the point. Look in verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. And all are going to him. I mean, do you hear what they're saying? This isn't just a Captain Obvious statement, a a matter of fact, like, oh, look at there, Jesus is baptizing people. No, you you can almost sense a tremble in their voice, a fearful spirit bubbling up within them, a, a sense of despair about their future, a concern that they might become irrelevant. They say back in verse 26, look, he is baptizing. And what do they say? Now, they were baptizing people. We saw that earlier. But what do they say? They say, and all are going to him. It's an exaggeration. Their master, John, has been the Baptist. That was literally his name. That's been his thing. That's been their thing. But now that Jesus' ministry's taken off, it feels to John's disciples that all are going to Jesus instead of them. John is in, and his disciples are no longer trending. And his disciples, they're, they're seeming to get nervous. So they come to John, and what do they say? They say, Rabbi, in verse 26. It's a title of respect and honor, meaning important teacher. And I think it's worth noting that this is the only time in John's entire gospel that someone other than Jesus is addressed by that title. It makes you wonder if they use that title intentionally. Maybe as a way to try to puff John up or, or to assure him of their loyalty to him as a leader. Maybe they were saying something like, oh, teacher, John, our leader, just want to remind you we're on your team, we're your people, we're loyal to you, we're sticking around for the long haul. But you remember that guy from across the Jordan that you baptized, the one no one else seemed to notice until you discovered him? You remember that guy? Have you noticed what he's been doing lately? Preaching, drawing ca- crowds, baptizing? Well, isn't that your thing? I mean, aren't you the Baptist? He's taking your name. He's he's taking your claim to fame. He's kind of running in your lane now, isn't he? And What does that mean for us? What does that mean for you, for our future? He's going to put us out of business. What are we going to do, John? This is the conflict that, that John the Apostle is helping us to see. But just before we move on, just don't misunderstand. It wasn't as though... John's disciples started to question whether or not John, Jesus was actually the son of God. That's not really what's going on here. Remember, they had just admitted that in verse 26. They said, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. John bore witness that this was in fact the Christ, and they trusted that witness. But the ministry that Jesus was now doing, it seems to have been intimidating John's disciples. And I think that makes us want to ask Why? why do they seem so territorial? This is Jesus we're talking about here, in the flesh, the Messiah, the one that they had foretold. This is the Savior, their Savior. This isn't an enemy or a competitor. They should be celebrating the ministry of Jesus, but instead, they feel threatened by it. They're comparing when they should be cooperating. Instead of lifting their hands in worship, they're tightening their grip on what they feel gives them worth. Instead of rejoicing in faith, they're recoiling in fear. They're they're afraid. Afraid of being overlooked. Afraid of being replaced. Afraid of losing their identity and purpose and place of prominence. Afraid of becoming yesterday's news. Aren't we all, in one way or another, tempted to be afraid of the success of those around us? Do you relate to that in any way? Afraid to see others succeed, instead of rejoicing with them, we find a way to make it about us in the best way. Maybe we make it about how much better we are than them, like in our own self-interest, best kind of way. Especially if if their success happens to be in an area in which we think we're strong or in an area for which we want to be known or valued, and if no one seems to notice, we turn bitter. In ministry, it can look like comparing preaching gifts or church attendance or ministry growth. We desire to be known for being a good pastor or a talented worship leader or musician or a gifted children's ministry teacher or a caring and popular D group leader. We can be. I mean, we can want to be known as a mighty prayer warrior or an energetic evangelist or a generous giver, and we can feel threatened when anyone in our ministry category seems to be more recognized than we are or better at it than we are. We can become afraid that we'll suddenly become irrelevant, overlooked, and unimpressive, overshadowed by someone else's gifts and talents or availability or charisma. It's the same thing John's disciples are wrestling with, a prideful preoccupation with being exalted. And not to the level of God or anything crazy like that. Of course not. Just high enough to feel safe and secure. Maybe for for those of you in the workplace. It can be a tireless clawing of your way up the corporate ladder. Or or for maybe you guys who are self-employed, it could be being tempted to sacrifice one value or priority or loved one one after another, never satisfied until you make it all the way to the pinnacle of success, whatever that is in your mind, because you're convinced that being at the top is where contentment and safety is. You want to be the best. Before you know it, what began as a noble desire to be an honest, dependable worker, it's morphed into a craving to be known as more valuable to the company than any of your colleagues. This comparison. It can express itself in quarreling and, up, and one-upping and looking out for your own interest, all of which just leave you exhausted and friendless and miserable. Do you relate to any of that, you guys who are in the workplace? Young people, comparison is especially present in the years of life that you are living in right now. Your parents, we can tell you from our own experience of that season of life, like it, it's, it's all around. It can be seen in how we think about the way we dress and the way you spend your time and the entertainment choices you make and the music you listen to, the famous people you look up to, the things you think are funny or cool or desirable. Always needing to be in the know to feel liked and wanted. Never wanting to feel left out. And you don't really grow out of it, do you, moms? I heard Kevin DeYoung say one time that the reason it's so hard to be a mom is that almost every other woman your age has the same vocation. (laughs) You look on Instagram, all your friends seem to be doing an infinitely better job than you are. You see their posts, so blessed, woke up late this morning only to find my kids sitting in the living room quietly reading their Bibles together. (laughs) And you're like, what am I doing with my life? (laughs) You know, it's often at the root of our tendency to compare ourselves to others a prideful pursuit of self-glorification. C.J. Mahaney, in his book, Humility, True Greatness, says this about pride. Pride takes innumerable forms, but has only one end, self-glorification. That's the motive and ultimate purpose of pride, to rob God of legitimate glory and to pursue self-glorification, contending for supremacy with him. The proud person seeks to glorify himself and not God, thereby attempting to, in effect, deprive God of something only he is worthy to receive. No wonder he hates pride. John's disciples, they, they lost sight of the purpose in their ministry. They had become proud. They had become distracted by the pursuit of their own glory. And they are threatened This is such a crazy thought, isn't it? They're threatened by the increasing fame of Jesus when they should be rejoicing in it. They're more concerned with what their future might hold than they are with the Savior who holds their future. So they start freaking out. (laughs) But not John. John, the Baptist John, John has learned that it's not profitable to be in the self-glory game. John knows success in ministry is not found in his own rising fame. He knows, our main point, true joy is found in humbling, uh, humbly exalting Christ. And this is what he wants to remind his disciples of. So he offers them a few reminders in his response to their, uh, their observation about Jesus. Look in verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So the first reminder is nothing really groundbreaking or profound. It actually, it's really just him stating what should have been embarrassingly obvious to them. Sorry. He tells them, you are the recipient, not the giver. That's the first thing he says. And, and really, that's like Christian 101, isn't it? John's disciples should have known this, but they forgot it. And if we're honest, it's something we tend to forget too, way too often. And we we forget right along with them. And so, John, he gives us this loving reminder you're the recipient, not the giver. You're, You're not the giver. That's never been your role, that's God's role. Your role is to receive the gifts. He gives the gifts, we receive the gifts. He is from heaven, we're from earth. The gifts come down from heaven where God is, and they come down to earth where we are. Don't forget your place, John says. Everything you have in your life, it's all been received. It's all been a gift. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul was telling the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians four? Verse seven, what do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? And James said this in James chapter one, verse 17, "Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father." It's all a gift. Your life is a gift. Your history is a gift. feel like Jerry Seinfeld. Your intellect is a gift. I don't know how to do Jerry Seinfeld. Your nationality is a gift. Your wealth is a gift. Your health is a gift. Your marriage, it's a gift. Your relatives, even though they may sometimes not feel like it, they are gifts to you. And they are gifts given to you by the giver. You're the recipient. He is the giver. So what's our role? Receive. Receive the gifts the giver has chosen to give to you. Don't complain about them. Don't compare them to other people. If you want to give, if you really got to give, like this is what you can give. You can give praise to the giver for the gifts that he's given to you. That's what you can give. And that kind of posture, John knows, it's going to keep you humble. It's going to bring you joy because true joy is found in humbly exalting Christ. But John, John he's got more to say. Look in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The next reminder he gives his disciples is, you're the messenger, not the Messiah. He's got to be, I mean, John, he's just got to be thinking to himself, really, guys, this is what I need to remind you about? Haven't I made this clear from the very beginning? You guys, you, you even just said it yourselves. You know what I've been about. You know what my ministry has always been. It's been to bear witness to Jesus. Have you, have you really forgotten that? This has never been about me. I've said it so many times. I'm not the Christ. Remember, they asked me, are you Elijah, are you a prophet, are you Christ? I said, I'm not the Christ. My job is just to point to the Christ, to call people to the Christ, not to be the Christ. I am not the Christ. They needed to hear John remind them again, apparently, you are not the Christ. I wonder if some of us need to hear that this morning. You are not the Christ. I hope that's encouraging, especially for any of you who love to be the answer man, the know-it-all, love to swoop in and rescue in a bad situation, to protect the avenger, the savior of the world for everyone around you. It might be a little painful, but you need to hear John remind you, you are not the Christ. There's relief in admitting that to yourself. And knowing and believing and living out of the good that we don't have to be the Christ. You are not the Christ in your marriage. You are not the Christ for your children. You are not the Christ to your friends or your classmates or your coworkers. To be sure... Don't be confused. We are called to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. We are called to bear the image of Christ. We are called to be Christ-like in all that we think and say and do. But here, John, exhort you, you are not the Christ. There's a difference. You know why? Because Christ is the Christ. We sang it this morning. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What's our only confidence? Confidence our souls belong to him. There's only one Christ, only one Messiah, and he came to redeem the world from its bondage and slavery to sin. He came to bring the hope of eternal life. He came to die in your place and in my place so that neither of us would have to bear the punishment of our sins deserved. There is only one Christ, and it ain't us. Our purpose, John tells us, is simply and profoundly to be the messengers of his good news What relief that's meant to give to us this morning, church. What comfort and peace to release the grip off of our own self-worth, to renounce self-centeredness and self-loathing and self-atoning and self-righteousness and to receive the gift of our Savior's sufficiency and power and forgiveness and grace. True joy is found in humbling, exalting christ john continues the humility lesson so far he's taught them you're not the recipient i mean you're the recipient not the giver you're the messenger not the messiah and next he tells them you're the best man not the groom look in verse 29 the one who has the bride is the bridegroom just stop right there the witness does it again stating the obvious John says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. What does that mean? Well, the best man doesn't get the bride. The groomsmen don't get the bride. The photographer doesn't get the bride. There's one person who gets the bride on her wedding day. That's the groom. John's saying, open up your eyes, guys. If all the people are beginning to gravitate toward Jesus and away from us, then that's a really good indication that Jesus is actually the bridegroom that we've been proclaiming. We've been pointing to him as the Messiah who would come as a bridegroom and sweep his bride off her feet. And look, that's exactly what's happening now. Don't be discouraged by that. Mission accomplished. And then John takes the wedding imagery a little further. And I I think maybe perhaps to add a little humor to the point he's making and to help his disciples remember their place in this grand scheme of things. Look at verse 29, the second half. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete, he says. He he basically says, all those people that we've been baptizing, they aren't showing up to the wedding for us. Yeah, we got here early. We made sure the place was ready. Made sure everyone had their clothes washed and their teeth brushed and got the flowers in place. Triple checked that we had the wedding rings. You know, that was our job. But the bride, she ain't here for us. She's coming to be wed to the groom. We're just the best man. Our job is to make sure the groom gets his girl. I mean, just think of how disgraceful it would be for the best man of a wedding to spend the entire wedding day trying to steal the attention of the bride away from her groom, photobombing their pictures, breaking in on the first dance, trying to sit between them in the getaway car or or showing up at the hotel on the honeymoon. No, man, John says, that's not your job. As the friend of the bridegroom, you got one job, and that's to make sure the groom gets his girl. And when he finally does... You have a follow-up job, and that follow-up job is to rejoice, John says, to celebrate the work that God has done, and the work that God is doing, and the work that God will continue to do. It's not to mope around in self-pity, that you aren't the reason everyone is gathered, that you don't have to be the center of attention, that you didn't get to have all the eyes on you. True joy is not found that way. It's not found in selfishly exalting ourselves. John says, again, true joy is found in humbly exalting another, Christ. And then he gives his disciples one last reminder. Basically says, you got to get out of the way. Look at verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's got to be one of the most potent mission statements for the Christian life that you'll find in all of Scripture. Such a simple phrase, but it so perfectly embodies this whole posture that John has been reminding his disciples to have. The posture of a recipient, the posture of a messenger, the posture of the bridegroom's friend. All these postures, they stem from the central posture of God's people. Humility, from a purposeful willingness to decrease in our glory so that Christ may increase in his Is that your posture? Is that your aim in life? Too often, it's not mine. Too often, I'm doing everything in my power to increase in my own glory, to increase in popularity, to increase in knowledge, to increase in power and influence, to increase in pleasure and entertainment, to increase in wealth and financial security to increase my own self-worth, my own self-sufficiency, my own self-righteousness. And John says it's worthless. It's a worthless pursuit. We must decrease. We will never find joy by exalting ourselves. True joy is found in humbly exalting Christ. And I want to end this morning by looking at the very last verse of chapter 3. We didn't read this together yet, but John ends this whole section. You know, chapter 3 uh, is part of the entire um, prologue so far. It's from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3. It's, it's kind of like he's bookending what he's been teaching in chapter, what he introduced in the book in chapter 1. Uh, so I just wanted to, to highlight this last verse as a way for us to, to conclude and just to think about all that we've learned this morning from, from this text. Um, he, he concludes chapter three with a warning and a promise. Look at verse 36: "Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life." We saw something similar to that last week, didn't we, in John 3:14 uh, through 16? Uh, Good go look at that verse as well. John three verse 14. "And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of man." be lifted up. He he must increase, right? That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So joy, life, it's found when the Son of Man is lifted up. So I think what John is saying, just to boil that down, belief in the Son gives life. It's a simple phrase that we can remember. Belief in the Son gives life. Whenever you're tempted not to believe, remember belief in the Son, it's going to give you life. That's the promise, But then look how John contrasts the promise with a warning. Continue in 36. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now you think John would have contrasted the promise, whoever believes in the Son, with the warning, whoever does not believe in the Son. But look at what it says. That's not what he says, is it? What does he actually say? He says, whoever does not obey the Son. And that's interesting. What is John trying to say to us about the relationship between belief and obedience? I think he's maybe saying saying two things, something about belief and something about obedience. I think he's saying we won't obey who we don't believe. I think he's also saying our obedience to whatever it is that we obey, it proves our belief in that thing. Our obedience proves our belief. So belief and obedience, unbelief and disobedience, they go hand to hand, they're synonymous with each other. So the promise, if you believe Jesus to be your Savior, through your obedience to him, through your repentance, through your worship, through your communion with him, through your being sanctified, through the words you speak and the thoughts you think and the desires that you feel, through the laying down of your life for the sake of his kingdom's advancement, if you believe in those ways with your obedience, he promises you eternal life. That's good for us as Christians to remember that as so we walk out of here today and we go back to live in life, we, we can choose to obey and our obedience will prove our belief in Christ. And that belief, God promises to, to uh, give us life. The life that he promises comes from that. It's an un- incredible undeserved gift that we can experience. And, and at least in part, we can experience it right now, today. We can do that. And we will, we know we will experience it fully in the eternity that awaits us. But but then, then there's the, the warning part of this. And listen, I, I don't know everybody in this room, and even those of you I do know, I don't know your heart. I don't know where you stand with the Lord. I don't know. Uh, the, it's not my job to question the authenticity of your profession of faith and belief in Christ or to judge how well I think you're doing at obeying Him. That, that's not any of our position. That's God's position. His, he's the judge. He's the judge. But what this text is telling us is that if you don't believe in him, if I don't believe in him, if there's not an active obedience in the Lord, then then what you're promised instead of eternal life is, is not good. Look again at the warning in verse 36. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life so not only will you not see life but the wrath of god remains on him john gives us two options either you believe and obey the son of god or you by your unbelief choose to disobey the holy sovereign god of the universe who created and sustains your very life so again i don't i don't know where you stand in your faith in the lord But if you've not professed faith in Jesus, I think he's he's given you an invitation this morning to humble yourself, to receive from the giver this invitation through John's inspired words to, to turn from trusting in yourself to save you, to believe in Jesus, the son, to receive the joy of his eternal life, to trust in him. That's what he's calling you to do. Young people, that's what he's calling you to do. And, and I pray that if that's not been something you've done, that that's something you're doing right now in your mind, in your heart. You're asking, you're receiving, you're saying, Lord, I want that. And if you're doing that this morning, or you know, let me encourage you, talk to somebody. There are Christians all over this room who would love to talk to you about that. Come find me. Come talk to me. Come find one of our other leaders. Come find Stephen. Find one of our hospitality people. Find somebody on the prayer team that's going to be up here in a few minutes. Or, or, you know, if you don't get any of us, go on our website. Call the church. Talk to somebody. Ask questions. If this is what the Lord is doing, if he is inviting you to, to make this decision to have life in his name, you don't want to miss that opportunity this morning. There's no promise for how long God will give you before your time on earth is up. Happens all the time. People seem to be be taken away too late. Turn to the Lord, respond to Jesus' invitation today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for just the way that, that walking through your word week by week together as a church, the way that, it, that you dictate to us the things that you want to speak to us. Uh, Lord, thank you that we can trust that that's not something that Eric came up with today. That's not something that Billy or Hugh or Alan came up with. Lord, we, we, are, we are reading through your inspired word, and you are deciding, God, what it is that you want to press upon your people both by way of conviction and by way of exhortation. Lord, and so we, we as we prayed at the beginning, Lord, we, we just want to receive, Lord, we want to receive. You, the giver, chose this morning to give this word to us, to put us in its crosshairs. Lord, we, we want to receive whatever it is that you are calling us to. I don't know what all that is. Lord, but your spirit is ministering yourself. Lord, and you you are helping us to know whatever it is that's coming to our minds as we're considering whether or not we are obeying you or whether or not we are believing in you or whether or not we are humble before you or whether or not we are seeking to exalt ourselves or whether we're we're feeling joyless right now, miserable, depressed, discouraged. Lord, you, you know, your spirit knows. We can take comfort in knowing that you know. So I just want to pray for each of us here this morning. I want to pray and ask God that you would, um, that you would make us humble people. And what does it mean for us to, to decrease? What it, it means at the, maybe the very least, it means just confessing that we, we've been too proud. Confessing that we have that not sought your glory. Confessing that we have placed ourselves in the position of increase. And maybe, maybe that's the simple request that you're calling many of us this morning to respond to, to humble ourselves and confess our need, to see you as, as great, to see you as exalted, Lord. Take a few minutes. Let's just go ahead and stand together. We're going to sing. If, if that's you, I, I, you know, we, we don't do a, a lot of come on down here and have a moment with Jesus kind of stuff here at this church. Uh, nothing wrong with doing that. I think there are times where that's super appropriate for us to do. For us to, right now, in this moment of faith, to respond. I, I read a, a quote about preaching it was talking about you know the goal of a preacher is not to get the people to remember his outline that's not the goal the goal is for in the active moment of preaching for god's presence to be felt for god to be speaking to his people in that moment and so there's there's something special about right now that's going to be different than once you leave out of this place there's nothing special about this place i'm not saying that but there is something special about this moment, us gathered together. There's faith that God has been working into your soul, whether you know it or not. He's been working it into your soul as, you, as you've been listening to his word preached. And so there's a, there's a ripeness that we should have to respond. So I just want to encourage you as we say, respond. If you need permission to know what that means, it means you can come up here and kneel before the Lord and pray to him. You can go find somebody in this room that you know and say, hey, would you, I was really... Like, God got me this morning, and I need to confess this to you. Like, go do that. must be a people who are humble enough to respond to the Lord when he speaks to us. Okay, Stephen.